0: It's only when you lose a very large percentage of your youth, and particularly in the situation like a large war, that you suddenly realize the value of life. Many of the benefits that uh, European countries um, provided for their own societies after the war was that shared moment of everyone's lost a son. That's an emotive moment. It gives rise to very strongly inclusive policies. We're now three generations away from that war. I'm not saying we need a war to be human, but a war shows us at our best as humanity and at our worst as humanity. And so when people say, why are we returning to nationalism? Well, this is how the world was before those two wars.
1: Hi, and welcome to Declarations, the human rights podcast run out of the Center of Governance and Human Rights, CGHR for short, here at the University of Cambridge. I'm Matt Mahmoudi, and I'm a PhD student at the Center of Development Studies.
2: And I'm Sarah Mohammed, and I'm a PhD student in Politics and International Studies here at the University of Cambridge. And we're your hosts for this season of the Declarations podcast.
1: With every episode, we'll be exploring contemporary debates about politics and human rights with people who study them and people who fight for them, both here in the UK and around the world.
2: So last season, we talked to Dr. Hajin Chang about economics as the antithesis to human rights. Today, we're talking about global economic institutions and their role in human rights. Can they advance or do they inhibit human rights? What can we learn from failures of development? And how can lessons be learned as a springboard for tackling issues of gender, education, and inequality? We're joined today by Dr. Shailaja Fanel a lecturer in development studies and an international leader in development as it intersects with education and gender.
1: Also joining us today are our regular panelists Arunjajit Basu. What's up? Michael Barton. Hi. And Yusha Bastani.
3: Hey. I'll just start off with a little bit of a brief history on how the trajectory of international organizations has sort of interacted with global politics and development. So when the Bretton Woods Conference happened in 1945, um, there was a lot of optimism, and there were sort of these institutions, international organizations in general, but these Bretton Woods institutions were considered sort of angels on earth. you know, they were regarded as the international community coming together to help impoverished communities across the globe. Um, John Maynard Keynes was a major part of this sort of uh, Movement and it, it was something that harbored genuine optimism about what the international community could do. However, there were three broad issues with the way in which these organizations were structured. One, of course, was the level of expertise was of course largely from transatlantic institutions. So, and as we'll see later um, there, it, it, ha- it reeked of a certain ideological bias, uh, a bias that is, you can call it neoliberalism, you can call it um, bias towards de- deregulation, towards the free market. And therefore that played out in the way they handle certain crises. The second was what a lot of scholars know as path dependency, where you the options that the community considered they had in the future was limited by uh, information that was available in the past. And this path was, of course, um, filled with power dynamics and the imbalances of power, and that played out in how the institutions function. And the third is generally a term we hear very often with regard to the impact of these organizations is bureaucracy. There was a lot of bureaucracy in the way projects rolled out. And I'm sure uh, Dr. Fennell can t- t- talk about, she's done a lot of work on in the education sector and, and so has the World Bank, but um, we'll have to see how how that sort of uh, played out. So the two major tipping points in terms of the way people start, common people started looking at international institutions came largely in the 1990s where you, you had the East Asian financial crisis and it was Argued, uh, Joseph Stiglitz argues this fantastically in, in, in his book, Globalization Dis- Discontents, where the, these institutions handled the crisis badly, they imposed obligation of structural adjustment that possibly weren't, weren't appropriate, and that led to the crisis simply getting uh, worse than w- 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 what it should have been. The second major source of resistance has been in the field uh, largely of intellectual property, where you have the WTO, you have this bias towards free trade, you have the TRIPS agreement, and then um, the TRIPS agreement, of course, um, it, it, it's been argued by activists in South Africa and in India as well recently that they don't really favor innovation, but they favor big pharmaceuticals. So uh, practices such as, known, such as, for example, evergreening, where you can just make minute changes to your patent and continue having that patent on a certain property and therefore pro- prof- profiting from it, which prevents, of course, um, poor people who are dying of various diseases in developing parts of the world from accessing these drugs. There was a, a Supreme Court case decision in India that was widely critiqued by the, by sort of uh, support supporters of this intellectual property regime, but that is a source of resistance. So this is something that I'm, I'm looking forward to exploring in terms of how human rights can possibly act as a check or if at all international organizations can further human rights in, in any way.
4: Well, I think this ties in interestingly to some stuff that we've talked about before, because um, as Jeet notes, you see the emergence with the history of the institutions of very specific sort of sets of knowledge and sets of assumptions that are quite hard to question from within those institutions. And we've had conversations before in the context of sort of decolonization about the need to question kind of hegemonic modes of knowledge and hegemonic assumptions. I think that applies here as well. So, for example, you had this statement by the IMF in September, which received a lot of fanfare, where they said basically that um, higher taxes meant to reduce inequality were not a barrier to growth, which was a reversal of their previous position, which had been you know very aggressively pro-austerity, pro-privatization, low taxes for the rich, etc. And that was hailed as this very fundamental shift and in some senses it was because they were rolling back to some extent their commitment to austerity but they were retaining their commitment to growth in that the metric for a successful policy was still whether or not it was compatible with growth so there still wasn't the option of saying for example we would accept lower growth rates but a more equal distribution of growth which might improve the lives of more people so there's still kind of a fixation on specific macroeconomic indicators uh, over a distinction on the actual lives of people and how they're affected by policies. And I think that there needs to be a kind of a reorientation toward examining the human impact of economic development policies and the policies pursued by these institutions in general. So whether that's in the guise of kind of human rights or whether it's the language of social justice, I'm not sure. And I think it'll be interesting to talk about that today. But I do think that that reformulation needs to take place.
5: Going off of that, I think one thing that's important to keep in mind is that the language of equality, the language of rights, has been included in World Bank policies, for example, before. So the World Bank openly says that education is, of course, very important. It's a driver of development. It's a tool that can be used to reduce gender equality, to reduce poverty. However, a lot of the policies that they impose in the structural sets. However, a lot of the policies that they imposed in the structural adjustment programs that Jeet mentioned earlier on pushed to cuts to the cuts, pushed to cuts to social services such as education, and led to these sectors being privatized, and that's having pretty damaging consequences today. As Michael mentioned, the World Bank has admitted to certain mistakes about these policies. For example, there used to be a huge emphasis on primary education alone, and around 2000. They started to mention that higher education also has a high rate of social return, and that's been something that they ignored in their policies in the past. What I'm really interested in is the kind of impunity that these organizations have. So often, there'll be these like revolutionary moments, or sometimes there'll be these revolutionary moments where these organizations will say, actually, our approach in the past was not great, which, of course, is a good thing to keep reevaluating and keep thinking about the impact of these policies. At the same time, what happens when these policies have actually undermined human rights in some ways? They've limited the accessibility to education, and there isn't really any kind of reparation or apology for that. It's just, let's rethink these policies, and what are the implications of having that kind of impunity for these organizations?
0: I'm Shara Giffenel, and I've been based at the Center of Development Studies Um, since, oh gosh, 20 years now, Uh, so I got my lectureship in 1996. Uh, I work in the area of institutions and development, and I focus particularly on a major challenge between the 20th and 21st century, and that's on successful rural urban transformations. So if you like, it's a flip side of why doesn't industrial policy work? Um, And I focus particularly on bottom-up approaches. I've looked at public-private partnerships in education, Uh, I'm looking now more at infrastructural challenges, particularly the way in which you could have social networks like using mobile phones and also more hard infrastructure, as I call it, which is in relation to energy or sanitation or water. And I look at more often why things fail rather than they succeed.
1: Let me start by asking you the question, why did they mess up? Why did institutions that were supposed to support international development end up supporting oppression themselves?
0: How long have you got? Three years? (laughs) Um, I think to answer that question, we really need to step back and ask why these institutions were set up. And I think she mentioned that it had to do with the post-war peace dividend and trying to grow after a period of considerable destruction. Uh, but many of the intellectual assumptions of the post-war period still were that countries that were successful as measured by high GDP, now that they had shrugged off the black mark of being colonizers, would now be able to lead the way. Where does that set of ideas come from, it comes from the notion that there's a linear model of growth. There's a single model that every country must follow. So having learnt from historical inconveniences or having become more understanding, if we are being uh, giving it a fairer uh, presentation, we now help those countries to develop. In that model, There is a rather simple notion of the role of education, uh, as well as a lack of what we would call um, a perspective on human development. And it's only in the 1970s that you get a, a theory of human development. And that doesn't come out of the World Bank. It comes out of the UN. It comes out of European institutions. It comes out of the work of people like Francis Stewart and Paul Streeton who led the basic needs discussion as a way of critiquing that earlier 30-year-old development paradigm. So why did they get it wrong? They didn't get it wrong with intention. So they're not acts of commission. They are acts of omission. And the omission is in the model itself. So I think to be fair, it's not that they were wanton. Um, That model that they were following has very little room for maneuver because it's based on the notion of comparative advantage and efficiency coming out of using an industrial-led policy which translates into comparative advantage in trade. So in that model, if you've got your trade balances wrong, then you must have done something wrong. So then you turn around and say, well, you've done something wrong. We're going to help you fix it but you need some time to do it. So if you need more than, if you don't simply have a flow of funds problem, if it's less than 24 months, that's when the IMF gave its loans, so the short-term loan. Structural adjustment, people talk about, people forget the IMF also gave loans. It's only if it's more than 24 months and you need some fundamental macroeconomic rejigging, then you go for a structural adjustment loan. Having said that, it's not the case that developing countries didn't have problems. But whether they had problems because they didn't follow the model or they couldn't follow the model, uh, with features going back to the 1970s, like the two OPEC price hikes, which for many sub-Saharan African countries actually made their oil debt greater than their GDP. It's just not economically feasible. So to answer your question, in the first half of the, the, the period, the, the 20th century, the, the period from 45 to 80, the model was was not fully developed and therefore they couldn't get it right. I would have put it that way. Subsequent to that, the point that's being made about the 90s and the 2000s, so that's a slightly different shift. I wouldn't make the argument that the private sector has not rolled over in development and that the government alone can do that for a number of reasons. One, the government does not have as much money. Second, you want to regulate your private sector. So even if you're using your private sector, you need to be in conjunction with the public sector. But The point about impunity is one that's well taken. I think we need to consider it very, very seriously, and it links to why did austerity come so quickly. It's, again, this gut reaction. Something's wrong, let's rein it in, or let's cut it out. You know, it's like a surgeon's scalpel. That doesn't make sense. You don't cut people's head off because they've got a boil on their head. Um, And so you've got to think about where are the systemic problems uh, which would, would result in us having to reconsider. There is, however, some rather... You know the bank has very many intelligent people uh, who go into the bank and then you think well these are people you know you studied with or worked with or heard you know they're not so it's not that they are, it's how do you convert these complex ideas into a paradigm that's measurable through metrics and can then be run in a three-year project cycle so it's thinking about development in manageable bites and development by its nature is messy it Institutions are not built for efficiency. If they're efficient, that's a good thing. They're built for political purpose, and often that's the purpose of nation building.
5: So you mentioned that development work is hard and messy and often fails. We've seen in the past a lot of pushback to the policies that these organizations come up with um, to their failures, to this process of figuring things out. Do you think this kind of pushback and protest, for example, protests to the World Trade Organization in Seattle in the 2000s, uh, similar protests to other international financial organizations, changed the rules of how things are looking going ahead or have had an impact on the rules going ahead. So
0: protests such as those that we saw in Seattle, uh, anti-globalization protests, more recently protests in in this country and other parts of the high-income world around, financial crisis and the austerity and the Occupy movement, show that the younger generations often angry uh, with what they feel is uh, a destruction of what should have been a legacy that was better than before. And that's something that comes out of the post-45 movement, that never again would a generation be worse off than that previous generation, never again would we lose our sons. That's a very powerful moment of trying to come to understand uh, why things went wrong. Through those protests, however, some structural features of institutionals at the international level come through. And often it's about asking the questions about why they are developed the way they are. So with the WTO, it doesn't come out of the blue, it comes out of a moment where you're moving regional trade blocks to looking at international exchange. In itself, the WTO rules are not skewed against smaller countries, but in practice, they are absolutely preventing them from coming in. So if you think about Geneva itself, it's an expensive place. Coffee costs five pounds. Um, And and so a poor country would not even have a mission there. So if there was a matter of a dispute resolution between a large country and a small country, they would have to fly in and then share an office with another country from the region, so West Africa or Pacific Islands, have three days, whereas the other side would have had a, stray, a slew of lawyers and a whole bunch of availability. So the very process is unequal in the sense of actual resource availability. Furthermore, you ask the question of who are the players who benefit from WTO? It's countries that negotiate WTO and it's countries that do the dispute resolution. But it's actually companies in those countries that often do the business. And so what happens as a consequence is that you could have a scenario where WTO then linked to intellectual property rights makes claims that its country, actually has some sole authority in relation to trade or you could have a situation where WTO brings something into the sector. So my pet peeve is agriculture should not be in WTO. Agriculture is not commodity trade. There are commodities in agriculture, but agriculture itself is livelihoods. If the French can argue, and I think they are right to argue, that Farming is a way of life in France, so it's the French farmers' right to exist that's being threatened. It's a fundamental human rights issue. Why is that not the case for farmers in Vietnam or in Chad or somewhere else? And here is where the issue of human rights gets particularly problematic and it's a puzzle, a puzzle that we should unpick much more often than we do. Who defines what's a human? And who defines how humanity should share its resources? So. You can say, why are you asking a philosophical question? Because these are fundamental intellectual challenges. If we don't, then we're getting a much shallower, thinner version. It's a veneer of human rights. It's not a true intervention. So I think when you're looking at international institutions, and that's really what young people are complaining about. You say something, you do something. And it's this tendency to do lip service. And so my example of W2 is just to illustrate that point. It's quick and easy. You debate, you discuss it. It's how well you argue, your legal skills, your argumentative skills, your drafting skills. It f- stops being about the people who are affected.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you so much for that answer. OK, so uh, related to the theme of protest that we've seen um, in the it, it, it's hard to get away from the. <laughs> brexit era from the trump era and so the conversations now related to protest and globalization tend to be um in the global north this kind of white lash that exists to uh immigration sure but also to um globalization um and it's kind of framed as like a a right-wing nativist movement that is um figured around uh protectionism as much as it is on like symbolic representations of the home and homeland um do you think these uh (laughs) Articulations of like grievances of free trade and the globalized system are resulting in this kind of um, tide of right-wing nativist movements. Do you buy that argument, or um, or how do you how do you figure that kind of question?
0: That's a hard-hitting question, so I'm going to give you a hard-hitting answer, and it's one that I have been thinking about for a while now, and that's why I started my discussion today, my contribution with thinking about the Second World War. It's only when you lose a very large percentage of your youth and particularly in the situation like a large war, that you suddenly realize the value of life. Many of the benefits that uh, European countries um, provided for their own societies after the war was that shared moment of everyone's lost a son. That's an emotive moment. It gives rise to very strongly inclusive policies. We're now three generations away from that war. I'm not saying we need a war to be human. But a war shows us at our best as humanity and at our worst as humanity. And so when people say, why are we returning to nationalism? Well, this is how the world was before those two wars. And wars subsequent to that have been fought outside of Europe, outside of the global north. People don't talk about, oh, in sub-Saharan Africa there are wars. It's just say, oh, people died. People got on the boat. They came here. If you look a map where wars are fought, which have European connections, then a lot of the wars being fought elsewhere are related to European connections, whether it's in relation to blood diamonds, or it's in relation to trade, or, or it's in relation to famine. The globalized world is interconnected. But that also makes it then easier to trace why there's nationalism. So even before the, the financial crisis in 2008, I I work on India and China, there was already a nationalist backlash in, 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 in India and China, and it wasn't, um, we don't want migrants because people don't migrate to India and China. It was more in relation to, we want to grow stronger. And in some ways that BRICS agenda is quite um, an interesting one. It's potentially probably a transformative one because now you have other big players who are saying, look, we do development in a different way. Mm -hmm. So there was a major shudder of fear when we had the AIB. So everyone said, oh my God, this is Asian bank and they're going to do a different kind or China's a donor, which is a bad donor. I don't think we should bandy around words of morality. We've got to think about what that means. So we need to think if we are serious about issues such as why people turn against other people, what the roots of it are. But to answer your question more directly, what is white lash about? There's anger, there's anger in so many groups of people. Um, I think Piketty's work and other people's work at the beginning of the 21st century showing inequality has risen. And people hark back, and this year is very important. It's Remembrance Day. It's 100 years after the war. Pankaj Mishra wrote this very powerful piece in The Guardian, and it was Max Weber who said, right, this is the, the, the trash, the, the scum of society standing. He was pointing to a whole bunch of African and Asian soldiers who were standing on the French seafront. You think, what did we do? Have we learned the lessons? And when you ask the question that way, then white lash or any other kind of ethnic lash makes sense. How long will people wait? So I see it in a longer historical period. Maybe that's, I'm just older, or I've been thinking about it for a longer time, but this is, I think, a fundamental question we have to address and we have to look within ourselves before we can address it looking out.
3: So uh, thank you so much for that emotional answer. And, and so my question ties into what you were saying towards the end about the rise of alternate power structures in international finance, such as the AIIB and So um, there was this term touted I think in the 1990s known as the Beijing Consensus as an alternative to the Washington Consensus where I mean for our listeners basically you have not so much of a free market more welfare accomplished through state mechanisms but there's also a greater state repression of political and civil liberties as was happening in China. The Washington Consensus was of course um, a free market fundamentalism basically where you have these Washington institutions running the global economy but of course you have a championing of civil and political liberties so i mean of course china has not really followed the beijing consensus particularly in the recent past where there has been repression both economic and civil in the rural areas of china particularly but do you think that we can have an alternate model of of, of human rights that poses an alternate to neoliberal structures to the washington consensus and as Nusha mentioning i was mentioning now that we have this form of backlash what is the way forward? Like, Can we have an alternate model or an alternate understanding of human rights or the economic rights?
0: So the, the Beijing consensus or the Washington consensus, why are these consensus? Who agrees? Yeah. Um, so I'm going to plug uh, a book that my colleague, Flavia Comim, uh, my colleague, Anand, from the University of Bradford, and I have compiled, we've got 42 chapters. It's called The Handbook of Bricks. But we wanted to call it The Handbooks of Bricks, plus plus, BRACS plus, you know. There are 25 countries in that space uh, in the period from the 1990s to today that are showing us plurality of decision making. Why can't we see it? Why do we have this rather blinkered view that there's one model and therefore there's an alternative? The thing that I have found both in my research and that I teach in my graduate classes is that there is often one objective, and that is still economic growth. And for some, it's human development, but it's usually a singular objective. But to achieve that objective, countries, because of the historical specificities, and many of the injustices that they have to overcome in the system, will take different pathways. Countries must define, as long as it's in keeping with an agreed criteria of what is human rights, the way they will achieve them. In the 1960s, people said Lee Kuan Yew was wrong when he said economic over political rights. But the thing that we have to remember, and we forget it at our own peril, and it's linked to my earlier point about nationalism and backlash, nation states are the only monopolist in lawmaking. We need to recognize that. Economists are scared of the word monopoly. Why are we scared of it? It is the authority given by the people of that nation. On the other hand, of course, the downside is nations can be very authoritarian; they may not listen to their people. But it is a difficult and sometimes a slippery slope. But I think we need to recognise that. I, I, ha- I had a colleague who said this in terms of academic difference. You know, he said this is no disservice to anthropology; it's a very powerful subject. He was an Indian anthropologist, Dipankar Gupta, is very well known, and he I was organising a meeting in in India for uh, Cambridge India interactions about. 10 years ago, and he said this in the the first meeting, and our vice chancellor, everyone was there, and he said, you come here and you talk to us, and it was very polite, what happens if I come to you and say I want to study French society as an Indian anthropologist? You come here and you study Indian society, and we welcome you. Would you welcome me? Would you think I was acceptable, I could do that? Very carefully, very quietly, and I thought, that's really powerful. And I say this because nations must treat each other with respect. So when you think about that, then your answer to your question becomes easier. What are the BRICS presenting? Are they a threat? Are they saying, as we today, South Korea's a model or Japan's a model for development? Are we not recognizing that feature? Mm-hmm. And of course, within that, there would be criteria which the countries themselves would have and that we engage in and we have a conversation that's meaningful. But this kind of um, league table you know, either you're one or you're eight or you're four and shaming countries. Not helpful. Um, certainly not in thinking about human rights might be helpful. in, you know, I've got 88% enrollment in education. You've got 92. Am I going to get more money from the Millennium Development Goals? or Are we going to lead in different ways? Competition as a principle for understanding human rights doesn't make sense. And if we were talking about gender in particular, No country does not have gender inequality. It manifests itself in different spaces. And I think just this idea of, you know, George Bush going to Afghanistan to help Afghani girls to go to school. I have no words to describe that kind of arrogance.
1: So in the absence of any sort of larger coercive authority to discipline states and in the absence of us drawing to this practice of naming and shaming, what can we do to advance the, the norms of human rights and, and the, the capabilities that come, comes with the narrative of human rights.
0: So I guess um, my colleague David Clark has been a very good friend and colleague and we think through these ideas and I think in some ways there are things we can learn from societies in the past. So that Socratic question of what is the good life. I think that's at the core of how you would ask people what they value. Uh, and sometimes people value things you don't expect. So you go into a society and you say, you know, it's a poor community and you ask them questions and they say, I want to be safe in my bed. How's that different from someone who's in a non-poor community? It's about the implicit uh, notion of violence. Uh, And so for us as academics, we, we suffer sometimes from this ourselves. We presume that we know the answers. We presume that because people are in difficult places that we need to help them. I think that's misguided. I think we need to ask people what they need uh, and think if it's feasible to provide it in the way they want or what is another way. You can have an engineering problem to these, but you can't have an engineering problem to development without the social scientists there. And I work increasingly with colleagues in the sciences. And when you think through a problem saying, how would I look at it, how would you look at it, that collaboration, deliberate, deliberative thinking, whether it's in policy making or in academic thinking, is far more useful uh, than shut door, open door. And I, I don't have a full fledged answer. I'm not an expert on human rights, but in my own work, the idea of sharing that notion of humanity and working through what people need and, and sometimes being honest and saying, I can't do that, is, is uh, you know, therefore that would be important.
4: So we've been talking a lot about the kind of power dynamics and hierarchies that structure the international economic system and the need to redress those balances. You mentioned earlier the example of France deploying the traditional language of human rights in order to get what it wanted, essentially, in the international trade environment and to be able to privilege its own agricultural workers to the uh, direct detriment of agricultural workers elsewhere in the world. I'm wondering if there are any examples of the inverse that you can think of? So are there any examples of the kind of states that you've been talking about as states that might be increasingly kind of helping themselves, whether it's the BRIC states, whether it's other kind of ascendant states that haven't traditionally been in control of international economic order deploying that traditional language of human rights to help themselves specifically. So invoking legalistic or rhetorical norms of human rights in an effort to upset or correct the balance of the international economic system as it has traditionally existed
0: so i just want to modify i don't think that the intention of the french was to necessarily um privilege themselves over other countries' farming communities. They were protecting their own. And their intention was, and you could take this as, if you like, a measure of democratic functioning, that as a government your responsibility is to the stakeholders in your country. So if your citizenry believe that farming is a way of life, then you as a representative body uh, need to represent that internationally. Sometimes, of course, governments do it in a far more, as you said, uh, manipulative fashion. They will say something to their home constituency and then to an international constituency, they say, we have to do this because people at home want it, so you can manipulate. And so in my earlier work, I've, I've argued about this, that there is a contradiction between the global, national, and local scales. And they work to the advantage of the political establishment at all levels and the disadvantage of people at all those levels. So I think what is, what is valuable to think about this is that There is a fundamental, I think, um, conceptual rethinking that's necessary about what we mean by human rights. And I indicated this earlier. And, And then to think about, and I think maybe that's what your question might be alluding to, new ways of fashioning what is the human to think about building alliances rather than to move away. So in the agricultural space, this has happened. There are global South movements where farmers across Latin America and, say, Southeast Asia have engaged in terms of loss of land rights. Uh, this is commonplace, particularly powerfully in the informal sector, and and it's countries that sometimes people might not expect the slum. Dwellers International, SDI, in South Africa, became a major player to link uh, politics in Sao Paulo with that in Mumbai. Um, Arjuna Padurai has done some work on that from the Mumbai side. Um, These are extremely powerful. And what they do, which has not been considered before, is they work in what I would call interstitial spaces, spaces that as yet have not been claimed and therefore are not visible to the global gaze. And then they come up with very powerful arguments. For me, currently the most... um, exciting one and one has to see how it goes is the link between global north and global south in agriculture so if you think about the slow food movement in italy and compare that with the californian movement and think about the initial agroecology that's being discussed that's a really interesting way in the space that i research and work and that's rural urban transformations They are not protest movements like the movements of the 80s and 90s, which were alternative. And I've already indicated why alternative might be a limiting feature if you want to change paradigms.
1: Having established some of these institutions, their ramifications, the problems that they lead to, how these institutions and our notions of humans interact with, with human rights, I'm really interested in digging a little bit deeper into your research, uh, Dr. Fanel. if we can address some of the interesting themes that have been coming out in terms of, for example, gender gap in development and in development institutions. I'm particularly drawn to uh, this question of the notion of work being premised on a particularly patriarchal definition of what work is. And I wondered if you could if you could tell us a little bit about that.
0: So sometimes we do ourselves a disservice when we paint very large pictures. So people could throw terms around like everything's patriarchal. Well, that's not very helpful. Um, it's a crowd pleaser sometimes, but analytically it's a pretty poor tool. It would be more useful to think, and maybe I'm so inclined because I work from the bottom up research objective, to understand how local gender norms are created. And they often are created through a kind of, if you like, set of um, um, nested approaches. So you could have a national approach which says, you know, men work in the army and women don't. How does that play out in terms of, you know, understanding masculinities and femininities at a national level? But often it's what happens in terms of the local level that is overlaid with this national discourse. And that becomes much more difficult. So if you're thinking about um, gender and education. So we, we did some work between 2005 and 2010 in, in four countries with DFID funded projects on educational outcomes in the poor. And as I already mentioned, it was a time where, you know, post 9-11, there was a lot of um, negative uh, uh, connotations about Muslim countries and particularly about men in Muslim countries and how they treated their women. And so when we started the research and we were in Pakistan doing the research, people said, oh, you know, of course, in this country, you know, father's not interested in their daughters. And we were quite puzzled because our, our, our partners, our, our co-creators in Pakistan, uh, my own PhD student, um, we hadn't seen that. And, and then we, we looked at the data and said, okay, you know, people are saying this. Um, and the data shows, for example, this is Khyber Pakhtunkhwa, which used to be North-West Frontier Province, where a lot of the, the militancy was. We have pages of narrative from fathers who may have been educated only to maybe the first year of a degree or year 10. And and the narratives were uniformly very powerful about getting education for their daughters. Now, where it differed from what maybe people in the global north would expect, it wasn't because my daughter will go and become an engineer, but it was my daughter will be a teacher and she will teach Islam. And, and there was one particular narrative I remember was so powerful. And one of these fathers said, Education is like a light. It's like the light of Islam is one light. Education is another light. And I want my daughter to have both lights. And, and and you just think, wow. And that's from someone who's finished year eleven and has three daughters and wants them to be educated. Now, whether you're successful or not is a different story. But when you start reading the sort of transcripts, you start realizing that, in a sense, there's much more to be learned in terms of gender relations before we go for these simple distinctions of, is there a gender gap? Which is why many of us in the field of education have critiqued the notion of a gender gap, because it goes back to that notion things are linear and measurable, and when women match up to men, then things will be okay, which is, which is I think, uh, unfortunate. So that's an example of how you come across, come across quite a different set of constellations of gender relations. Now, I'm not saying that it's description of this particular case in in Pakhtunwa is of equal gender relations, but it's about caring human gender relations. And so since the earlier questions around human, that's important to understand. But then there's are structural impediments. And that has to do with what I'm working on now, which is gendered social norms. It's very difficult. Um, in a community for someone to behave in what's in an unseemingly or inappropriate manner and not to have sanctions. Even if people are sympathetic because it creates, uh, it rocks the boat, it creates a a change in the power dynamics. Um, And therefore you kind of think, how do we change people's perceptions of what is appropriate and not appropriate? And again, I find that... uh, in uh, contrast to what people say, you know, it's about individual autonomy and therefore individuals fight. Much more effective in many of these contexts is through women's organizations, Mm -hmm. because it become more visible. Um, You you can then make an argument for the collectivity, which gives you legal remedy. And that then allows you to grow within that more um, uh, collaborative space. And that's not been studied enough. And I think that's an area that I particularly find helpful in thinking through how one would reach the universal, which is absolutely uh, important. And that is how one gets gender equality in different spheres. So, thinking about
5: how gender can become like a tick box for especially organizations that are looking to fund development projects, um, so NGOs and otherwise. And I'm always haunted by this um, passage in a Sadie Smith novel that I read um, called Modern Swing, um, which is her recent novel. I loved it. (laughs) And she has a passage where she's talking about, um, so in the book there is a celebrity who's made this huge investment in developing schools for girls. And the narrator is observing how there's all these young boys who have this strong resentment to the program because they're actually being left out of these schools. And they're not, so you can talk about patriarchy, but here you're talking about six-year-old boys who are you know, starting primary school. And they're incredibly disillusioned um, and bitter about development. Can you speak about a bit about the kind of consequences that when you take gender as a tick box, when you don't think about the relationship of gender, the construction of gender, can you talk about what the consequences of that kind of thinking is?
0: So I made the point about group identity and how it can be liberating when you work from within to create collaborative space. But when you say boys, girls, men, women, you're creating binaries. Mm -hmm. Um, Gender relations are not binary, they are co-constitutive. And the world of gender is not zero one. The world of gender is one where there is a range of sexualities and uh, preferences. And again, this seems to be a relatively late creation in development. And so you can think of puzzles. Uh, One of them is that India's got a transgender category, even though it's a country with a really poor gender equality record. Mm -hmm. And that comes out of its own history. Or the discussion now in terms of first Indians, in the, first Americans in the US had five categories of gender before it was cut down. So even if we look to history to give us notions of plurality, we recognize that there is a range. And particularly in relation to young boys and girls, there's, there's a lot of work that shows that through the life course, you change both your identity of who you are and that has a lot to do with what part of the life course you're in. Adolescence is an important period. But adolescence itself is protracted differently. So for young boys, it actually starts sometimes earlier than people think. It's not when their voices break, it's when they're six and seven and they have different sets of ideas, mm-hmm. similarly for young girls. So it's not simil- Adolescence is not when you're 13, that you, and when you're 18, you're no longer. And these are much more fluid as well. So when you start thinking in those terms, then the stridency to talk about gender equality is women achieving what men have, or worse still, knocking men out so women can get it. I think it goes back to this very sharp and nasty veneer of competition, which is almost combative in what it does. And I I mean, I was trained as an economist, so I'm not saying inefficiency is bad and good. I'm just saying, Think through what those particular principles mean in relation to what you're trying to achieve. Obviously, if you're taking an exam, you want kids to be well prepared and there'll be somebody who gets a higher mark than the other. But you need to prepare young people for that. And by having programs which make a group feel they are excluded, you're not creating that. And that's why I sometimes say that in these contexts, gender, race, ethnicity, linguistic, Mother, mother tongue language, all play this role of discriminating from one group to another. Or another area which people don't account: disability. Mm-hmm. Why should it be gap from? That's a medical model. It's a model of deficit, mm-hmm. right? And particularly with disability, there's a lot of you know work in the last twenty years saying it's not a it's not a deficit model. It's a difference model. Mm-hmm. When we start thinking of difference, then uh, it's it's a very very nuanced and lateral argument that you're making and then um we talked about social justice at the at the beginning so there's a very powerful and very useful concept that i'm currently working on on my paper on social norms um the idea of substantive equality mm-hmm. a wonderful paper read my, written by fredman last year 2006 she's a professor at oxford and she makes the point that there is more than one dimension in a substantive inequality, so against discrimination to include participation. And you can start then opening that up and why it's such a conceptual answer to your question. Because what you're saying when you have a program for girls versus boys has been very problematic in this country. Um, And and that's in a country where we don't talk about it in relation to an agenda program. Girls sit quietly, therefore boys are seen as boisterous. Mm. Why would you say a five or a six-year-old has that kind of problem? Mm. They just started school. They don't have a problem. It's the way we're viewing them that is problematic. It's our own mental mode of analysis that's problematic. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, it would work. So I I think the way forward, and I'll just give an example to end. So I I, I was giving a set of lectures at the Judge Business School a bunch of... Um, senior head teachers from Delhi who came on a leadership program I gave lectures last year there were three batches and in one conversation after the, the the presentation Q&A and 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 a senior well-established teacher very thoughtful said but what do I do when I have a stupid child who's five years old and I just said how can they be stupid if they're five years old mm. he said, oh but they don't understand this I said that doesn't mean they're stupid and he looked at me and said yeah you're right that's how it works in the classroom you have so many children Mm -hmm. and so if you say that's a boy what do you mean that's a boy you know it doesn't make any sense to me Mm -hmm. and so when you think about life course and development then the other end is oh that's an old person Mm -hmm. why are we in terms of human development so willing to cut off the most important parts of society
1: this goes back to our definition of human again, because by making those distinctions, you're also making a sort of a, a spectrum of who is more or less human. Dr. Fennell, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been such a pleasure having you on the show.
0: Thank you very much for having me. I think the questions were really stimulating and I've learned a lot and I'm going to listen to your broadcast now. So thank you for introducing me to this space.
1: To our listeners out there, if you like what you're hearing, please go to facebook.com slash declarations podcast. Do go to iTunes, look for declarations The human rights podcast and leave us a review. You can also find us at Twitter at declarations pod. Thanks for tuning in. See you soon.